you ever wonder how some of the greatest people today become who they are? Most everyone has experienced that turning point in their life. It's these moments that forever changed who they were into whom they become. Today on The Moment with Chris Epting, you'll hear from these people and hopefully be inspired to find your own life-changing moment. Now, here is your host, Chris Epting. Hey there, and thank you for joining me back here on The Moment, which I bring to you each Thursday every week. I talk to somebody really interesting about some very special moments in their lives. And that's something, um, that practice is something I really believe in. As I've mentioned, uh, as a writer, I give a a writing class here in Southern California where I live, writing your own memoir, writing your own story. And it's the very first thing we key in on are the moments in your life that matter the most. And that's sort of the starting point of unpacking your life. And I think it's a a great process, even if you're not writing a book. I just think it's good to kind of have an awareness and think about those moments because you learn so much, uh, not just about all good moments, either good and bad, you know, how you, how you get over certain hurdles, how you survive certain successes, all of those things, really big moments in your life, those really impactful points I think are worth uh, zeroing in on because you can uh, learn so much and they're especially helpful if you are telling your story. So I've had some really, I think, great guests on since I've started this show, uh, last week, we had Anson Williams, of course, from Happy Days fame. We had Todd Rundgren, John Oates, Jordan Rudis, some really interesting folks, the author Jane Levy, and, and some more coming up as well. And I've been so impressed uh, by how all of these these guests have have had the, um, the clarity when it comes to identifying their moments. I've learned a lot from them, and I hope you have too. Today's guest is no different. I... I'm a huge Doobie Brothers fan. I've written about them a lot. I have been a big fan since probably, I want to guess about sixth grade, about 1972, 73, uh, when I first heard Listen to the Music. That's what got me hooked. And then uh, from there, that just began kind of a lifelong love affair with the Doobie Brothers through all of the different things that they went through. And Tom Johnston, who was one of the, the founding guys back in the day, uh, is my guest today. We're going to get to him in, in just a moment. And you know, one of the things that I think about with the Doobies is, you know, we we have a lot. We music fans, which you know many of you probably are, we think about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and what it takes to get in there. And look, I think most music fans know at this point that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is is more of a political endeavor than anything else, and it's not really fair. I will say they've gotten better. I think they've gotten better in the last few years about including artists that really do belong that kind of recognition. And, you know, I think it's important to remember, too, that you can't simply, you know, dismiss it and say, well, it doesn't matter if they're in or not. I remember when Hall & Oates got elected, uh, nominated, and then and then ultimately elected. And I was talking to John Oates about it. He said, you know what? He goes, we have all kinds of issues with their process and how they do it. But at the end of the day, it really is good for the business of an artist to have that recognition. It may not seem like it, but for promoters and people that book shows, that's a really great handle to put on an act. They are a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Because the majority of the public, I think, does respect it and does think it's something um, fairly relevant and important. So it does matter. And the reason I bring that up is uh, I wrote an article a year or two ago about the Doobie Brothers and how I think they are one of the most glaring Um, examples of what's wrong with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I mean, most people don't even believe the Doobies are not in there, 
but they're not. And I was having a conversation with someone the other day. We were kind of kicking around bands that we feel should be in. And I had my a short list here. I would have put in, well, I think Todd Rundgren deserved it. He was nominated this past year. I think The Replacements, you can make a strong case for The Replacements. I think Carol King, she's not in. Um, the Doobies, as I mentioned, absolutely. Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, I think, should be in. Uh, looking at my list here, uh, Jethro Tull, I would put in. I think King Crimson belongs in there. Who else here? Not too many more on my list. I mentioned the replacements. I think you can make a case for the Smashing Pumpkins. I think the Smiths you can make a case for. So, so again, we've all got our short lists and long lists of who belongs uh, in the hall. The Doobies, to me, are right on top of that list. And Tom and I don't go into that today. We've talked about it before offline. He and I have had a lot of, I think, really great discussions um, for pieces I've written before. And I think today you'll sort of benefit from the chem chemistry of our conversations because we pack a lot into the half hour you're going to hear in just a moment. But, uh, but Tom does cover a lot of topics. You know, again, being in a band for nearly 50 years as he's been. He's learned a lot. He's got some great stories. And he was really good about moments that, that he feels were, were memorable to him. If you want to discuss this after the interview, there is a toll-free number here, which is 866-472-5788. That's 866-472-5788. After the interview, we can talk about the Doobie Brothers. We can talk about the new Leif Garrett book that I've been talking about recently here on the show called Idle Truth, which comes out this July and which I'm really excited about. We can talk about whatever you want. If you've got a guest suggestion or if you want to talk about a moment from your life, all is good, all is fair, all goes, no questions asked. But in the meantime, why don't we get to this now? Like I said, the interview runs almost a half an hour and Tom is going to take you really on kind of a compressed journey of his whole life experience from the Doobie Brothers up until... Uh, current day today. Now, if you don't know, the Doobies in April are going off on a tour around the uh, Midwest and eastern part of the United States on their own uh, headliner tour. And then this summer, they're going to be back on the road uh, co-headlining with Santana, which, uh, which promises to be just a, a great, great summer tour. If you've never seen the Doobie Brothers, I can't recommend it enough. They are, you know, it's amazing. Um, Pat Simmons, Tom Johnston, John McPhee, the rest of the band, they are playing at such a high level right now. It, it always blows my mind just how youthful and energetic uh, these guys are and just how their chops only, only get better over the years. If you go to doobiebrothers.com, you can check out all the tour dates and get your tickets all set up and stuff. Th this is kind of the time, I think, when people start setting up uh, their summer concert experiences. So now's the time to get good tickets. Again, doobiebrothers.com. You can get all the information there. And with that, we're going to go now uh, to my conversation with Tom Johnston. I hope you enjoy this, and I'll be back uh, after the break to take your calls if you're there or talk a little bit more about the doobies and some other musical things happening in the universe. In the universe. My name is Chris Septon. You're listening to The Moment here on voiceamerica.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Tom Johnston. Tom, welcome and thank you for joining me here on The Moment. Glad to be here. How Glad you to doing? talk to you, man. Tom, let's get right into it. When you think about moments in your life where things took sort of a, a big turn, what are the first couple that maybe come to your mind that, that really are the dividing line where things change dramatically for you? Yeah, the musical type, you mean? Yeah, yeah. In terms of your career, in terms of, you know, maybe, you know, pre-Doobie Brothers going back a little bit, what are the first couple of moments where you saw things change right in front of you and maybe even realized that, hey, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life? 
I think the first one that comes to mind, because I was already playing, and I was already playing in bands around Visalia and what have you. And I played in a soul group, and I played in uh, cover bands and what have you, and high school and all that, and junior college. But I think early on, one of the marquee moments was seeing James Brown live in Fresno uh, when I was a freshman in high school. And I don't know that so much spurred me on to say, oh, God, this is what I want to do, so much as I was blown away. I, I couldn't believe the show. I'd never seen anything like that. Um, so it was, as I say, it's kind of a marquee moment in my life. What was it about him and the band as much as you remember? Because, again, he obviously in that era put on one of the most dynamic shows in history. You saw him, like, right at the, really the peak, I think, of, of what he was yeah, doing. Yeah, the first Apollo album. Um, 1962, I believe it was released. Yeah. It was just the energy coming on stage was palpable. It was unreal. I'd, I'd never seen anything like that. And I'd, I'd never seen a choreographed show as well, which it very much was, yeah. and uh, complete with an announcer and all that kind of stuff. Something totally different from watching local bands or even people that would come through, like Jimmy Reed or uh, Spencer Davis Group or Doug Som or whoever the heck came through the valley that I saw. But to see something like that was mind-blowing. I mean, it was choreographed from start to finish time-wise as well as show-wise. And the songs, you had, he had a huge band. He had, um, I believe he had two guitar players. I want to say he had two drummers at that point. Right. He had background singers for the first part of the show, and he had keyboards. He had everything you could possibly think of. You know, guitar, bass, drums, keyboards, horn section, singers. And a lot of dancing going on as well. And that would start the show. And then he would come out and do a little bit on the keyboard. And then he would go back and he would come back out and do his portion of the show. Strictly his portion of the show. Him by himself along with the flames and the band, I mean. But um, I, it was just jaw-dropping. <laughs> how close? Remember how close you were to the stage or how close to him you were during the show? I, ooh, that's a long time ago. I would say probably 20, 30 feet from the stage. Wow, so you were right up there. I mean, you were able yeah. to really kind of get into it right up close. Yeah, I definitely got to absorb the whole impact. <laughs> Let's move on from there. I mean, that's obviously, you know, when you, when you ask especially musicians that have gone on to be really successful what their first show was that affected them, it's always something interesting like that, like seeing James Brown. But, Tom, moving ahead down the timeline a little bit more, as you get, you know, you move up north, start going to San Jose State. What's a moment maybe around that time that, that things, again, kind of shift and uh, give you some insight as to what you're going to be doing with the rest of your life? I think that was probably a time when I was honing in a lot closer to what I was planning on doing for my life. Um, I was going to college and studying to be a, a graphic designer, but it wasn't really at the forefront of my mind about I can't wait to do this. Right. <laughs> just, I was an art major, and I always have been, so it, was, it, it fell into place, but at the same time, I was playing music all the time. I had run into Skip Spence from Moby Grape and was hanging around with him a lot. You know, I was going to say, you and I have talked before, and I would think that meeting Skip Spence, given just the degree of influence he had on you, what kind of a bigger-than-life character he was, that's kind of a moment in itself, isn't it, getting to know a guy like that? I think so, yeah. It's a totally different kind of thing from the James Brown experience, but it's, it's just as impactful when you stop and think about it because he was quite a character. He was kind of like larger than life in his... In a sense, you know, and, and we, he and I and John Hartman got together and played music all the time, and then he would come over and, and play 
with just about everybody in the band at that time. I mean, it just had a lot of energy. And um, we were young, and we were young and young and dumb, and we didn't know anything better. But um, he was kind of a wild man. And he uh, influenced us all in a lot of ways. And we were all huge Moby Grape fans, that first album. Yeah. Influenced everybody in the band. And um, I think that is an impact in its own way. And then here's the guy that, you know, everybody kind of associates with it all. And it's kind of a lunatic, but he was, he was our lunatic, and we really uh, dug hanging around with him. And um, plus, he was just a very creative guy. Right. And uh, he'd come wandering through your back door and sit down and start playing music. And, and we'd go to his house and... Well, not we. It was generally one guy at a time would go over to his house and play music. But uh, that was also the, the period of time when we were up in the Santa Cruz Mountains a lot and Santa Cruz itself, SoCal, Aptos, whatever. And, uh, of course, the Chateau was part of that whole thing. Chateau Liberté, which was the old stagecoach stop up in the Santa Cruz Mountains, turned into a bar. And um, really... A moment in time. I don't think there'll ever be a place like that again. I don't think the people that made that work are not around anymore, and I don't think they'll ever come around again. So it was really a period in time. It's sort of like uh, Hate Street was in the summer of love. It's it's just very different. It's the kind of thing that only happens once, and it's only meant to happen once if you look at it from a karmic point of view. Absolutely, but I mean, if you're there in the middle of it, you know what it allowed you to do. I mean, I, personally, if I could, you know, be so bold, I think another moment might be when you were playing with Skip one night and uh, in Campbell, and you meet a guy named Pat Simmons. Exactly. If I hadn't been four, as you said, if I hadn't been playing with Skip, that wouldn't have happened. He and I and John and I believe Greg Murphy right. were playing over at the Gaslight Theater in Campbell, um, just playing rock and roll and just stuff that we just kind of threw together. And on the bill also was Pat Simmons along with a guy named Peter Grant, and they were really good. We were very impressed with them. Finger-picking a totally different style than what we were doing, mm. but it was the finger-picking bluegrass kind of thing, uh, Americana as they call it now. And we asked Pat to come over and jam, and um, he did, and we started playing music together. And I think that kind of was the genesis, and I don't think, I know, the genesis of the Doobie Brothers, because if you bring his style of music, my style of music, and John's style of music at that time together, uh, you've got rock and roll, you've got, I'll call it Americana just to round it out, and for me, you've got... R&B and blues and then that kind of stuff. And we all had rock and roll of various types, and you stick that all together, and that's kind of what the Doobie Brothers is. For those that don't know, I mean, a lot of this is happening at a now legendary uh, house on 12th Street in San Jose. where we're... Which is up for sale. Oh, is it really? Well, boy. This <laughs> yeah, is... I saw the pictures on, on a real estate site. I didn't recognize anything, man. It was ridiculous. It's totally been redone. Well, man, if there was ever like a location, brought up to spec. <laughs> if there was ever a location for a Doobie Brothers museum, I think that would be that would be the place. But for those that don't know, the house on 12th Street where you're staying in college really becomes kind of the ground zero for your musical experiences uh, in the city, and that's where Pat comes over, and that's where this whole kind of band concept begins to gel right down mm. in the basement and even upstairs, where there's music pretty much happening all the time, right? 
Yeah, it was kind of a 24-hour music center. It didn't matter if you were, you know, I, that all started before the band got together and while I was still going to college. Right. You could come home from class and music would be going on in the basement. It was, um, it was just, and if it wasn't going on in the basement, then it was going on in the, in the living room. And if it wasn't going on in the house at that time, then you were headed out to go hang out with people that were involved with it. Or mm-hmm. It was just kind of an all-encompassing thing. And it was just an old house, kind of beat up. I think it was from the late 1800s, early 1900s. Mm-hmm. And I was lucky enough to have a room in it for $40 a month. I mean, it was, you couldn't ask for anything more. It was perfect. Uh, you had your own room. Uh, we all shared the kitchen, and, and we had a bathroom for each guy, pretty much. And uh, there's several people living in the house. But it was just the vibe of that era. Uh, it was just really a neat place to be. And it allows this band concept to develop. We we can jump ahead a little bit here because obviously, um, you know, somebody makes a comment in the house. You guys have a gig up at, you mentioned the Chateau Liberté. You got to put a name on the band and somebody has this brilliant idea saying, hey, why not just call yourselves the Doobie Brothers, given the degree of things that might may have been consumed in that house. And mm-hmm. so a band is born, um, a first record comes out, Warner Brothers. doesn't do a whole lot. It's a, certainly a solid record. But really, it's the second record, uh, Toulouse Street, that finds you. Again, I would think the moment where you wrote a couple of tunes on that record um, have got to be pivotal in your life when you're in that room uh, creating something uh, that, that you feel has potential in a way that you never felt before writing a song, right? Yeah, listen to the music. It's probably the only song I felt so strongly about maybe ever I said this is a single and uh, given the time of you know and style of radio in those days FM was strong uh, still and uh, AM was playing I I just felt it would fit in and and the subject matter and the style of it uh, I just felt it it could do something and I had played it for Ted at about three in the morning when I was up writing it. Ted Temple, uh, producer at that time. So you Ted called Temple him in the middle of the night. Always, I should always include his last name. I have a bad habit. Uh, but you played it. over the phone for him at three o'clock in the morning? I did, and he didn't appreciate it. But um, <laughs> he said, let's talk about this in the morning. Uh, might, yeah, maybe. Uh, let's talk in the morning. <laughs> but uh, as it was, I never changed anything. We went down to the studio in L.A. and good old Amigo Studios. And we cut it, and we cut it pretty much just the way I'd written it, and it turned out great. And that was our first single. I mean, we cut a lot of songs. That was the Toulouse Street album, but um, one of them being Toulouse Street, of course. But Listen to the Music was the first single, and that's sort of what started this band on its road to going someplace. Yeah. It's interesting, too, because for folks that don't know, you know, early in the day, you guys as a band, it wasn't like you had this master plan of this is what we're going to do to succeed. You really just sort Still of took don't. day by <laughs> <laughs> But you took basically day by day. And so for you to actually, I think it's a big moment that you actually felt that this song, because you never thought in terms of I'm going to write a hit record, per se. You just mm-hmm. made music. So that you actually right. had a feeling about this song that, that, that paid out the way it did and did result in this signature song for the band, I think is really interesting. It must have felt really special to you when you were coming up with it. I mean, to have that kind of sense about it. It did. I was I was excited about how the song felt. I, 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 I think one of the unusual parts is that I also wrote the lyrics at the same time, and I never did that then. And it all fit. 
And I said, you know what, this, this is made to happen. I don't know if I got that deep about it, but I said, this, this could be a single. That's literally what I thought. And uh, I don't know if I ever felt that way again about songs. I just kept on writing and writing and writing, as you said. No plan, no direction, no anything. Whatever happens, happens. And uh, it's sort of like what the band does. We just do what we do, and whatever happens, happens. And um, never, this band has never been a hothouse band or a, uh, a you know, a strict idea. This is what we're going to do. Our album, the concept album idea was completely out the window. And... Um, it's just how this band has always been, and the fact that we've been together, it'll be 50 years next year, is sort of That's mind-blowing. Amazing. <laughs> I think another moment that at least strikes me is when, when the band decides to get the uh, your own plane, which became dubbed the Doobie Liner. I would think as mm-hmm. a band, that's a pretty big shift where all of a sudden now you're not racing to fly commercial, but you can basically um, do things like that. That was awesome. Speed. I have to say, that was so great. It didn't last that long. It lasted, well, probably 74 to, I don't think they were doing that in the 80s. I'm not sure what they were doing in the 80s, but um, <clears throat> 74 to 79 anyway. And um, we had our own pilot and we had our own stewardess. It was a prop job. You know, we weren't flying around in jets or anything. It was back in the days when you could lease uh, a plane of that nature, which was big enough to hold us all comfortably. Uh-huh. And it was, like a flying hotel room, man. Everything just, you know, guys are playing poker on the floor and you're either reading, maybe even playing guitar and you didn't have to get up and be on the schedule of commercial air, which, you know, when you were touring that way, it was, it was kind of a drag. You had to be there ahead of time and you, and this is before the days of TSA and, and sure. security and all that crap, but still, you had to be there at a specific time. Your plane left at a specific hour and only went from one place to another place. And if it wasn't the time you were going to play, then you had to get in another form of transportation to get there. With that thing, you could go land anywhere. It was great. And you didn't take off till noon every day. And it, it allowed the party to continue, obviously. All of a sudden, there was a seamless thing now where you could just go from the hotel to the plane, back to the hotel, and it really allowed you guys to not interrupt whatever you know, what, what you were doing, whatever kind of fun you were having, making music or whatever. The plane mm-hmm. really gave you a lot more freedom, it seems. It did. And plus, we really liked the pilot. He was a great guy. And, <laughs> and his wife was sometimes the stewardess. Other times, we had an, another guy who was a stewardess. But uh, we had some adventures on that plane. Well, there was, <laughs> was there one dicey moment, like out over Detroit or somewhere? Isn't there over st- Detroit when the engine went out and <laughs> a thunderstorm and we were lightning blasting the plane. Yeah, we all thought we were going we to <laughs> see our last moments on the earth. Um, Something but about- he landed it with one engine. Sam was an amazing pilot. Man, yeah, there's this and thing a pouring about rainstorm with, like I said, thunder and lightning everywhere. Rock and roll and prop planes. I mean, that's always got to make people nervous when you're up there and things start to kick in like that. I don't think anybody ever thought about the nervous part of it, except when something like that would happen. Right, right. Maybe really rough weather. And the funny thing about it is that scene where we're all on the plane and you know one of the one of the props is feathered and we're thinking oh shit we're gonna go down <laughs> and uh that very scene gets played in um what's that cameron crow movie almost famous exactly almost famous yeah exactly except that nobody yelled at him guy <laughs> but other than that it was the same exact scene man it's like somebody had heard about it or 
I think there were a lot of moments in that film that were sort of inspired by real life events like that. And since he was writing for Rolling Stone, he was certainly privy, you know, to hearing a lot of these stories get passed around and stuff. Yeah, that seems totally logical. Tom, another big moment for you, obviously, is uh, separating from the band where you um, in the mid 1970s. Um, you know, you go through a health issue and you've got to, you know, it, it results ultimately in you, uh, in you parting with these guys for a number of years. And I would think that's a big moment too, isn't it? It was, yeah, I was out of the band musically, so to speak for almost a year. Um, and it started right at the front of the stampede tour. So they had to bring somebody in quick. I had to leave the tour cause it was a ulcer situation. Right. And, um, they brought Michael McDonald in from Steely Dan. I mean, he wouldn't, I don't know. Apparently they weren't doing anything or he wouldn't have been able to do it. But um, they brought him in to play keyboards and sing uh, backgrounds at first. And then, lo and behold, on the next album, which was Take It to the Streets, he had, all, he had these songs written. And he started doing you know, some of the lead singing. And uh, they, were, they were his songs. And that was the beginning of that era. Right. And I came back to do the spring tour for that album, uh, Taken to the Streets. I had one song on the album, that was it. And then it continued in that vein where we were combining both styles of music. And then by 77, I just was kind of burnt out. And I, I wanted to take some time off, and I did. And from there till late 78, I just kind of hung around the town I was living in, Mill Valley, and uh, played baseball and uh, you know, hung around with other people I knew and, and just had a good time and, and then got back into music again and the next thing I know I was doing a solo album in 79 uh, with Ted Templeman again and uh, so I put that out and the song Savannah Nights went out with it and fairly successful and then we then I did another album in 80 that came out in 81 and uh, it wasn't quite as successful great songs but it wasn't quite as successful and uh, the band, the Doobie Brothers, broke up in 82. I went over and played on their very last show in Berkeley, California, mm -hmm. at their version of the Greek Theater. And, um, and then they finished that tour out, the farewell tour, and they broke up. And so, so five years, we didn't, uh, there was no band. And then we got back together uh, in 87 to do the benefit for the Vietnam vets, all this put together by Keith Knudsen, one of our drummers. He was very involved with their, their organization and the, and the cause. And he asked us, each guy, if we, you know, he would call, he called us up and asked if we would be interested in doing it. And we all said, sure, why not? Nobody else was doing anything of major note. And uh, so we did that. And we got together, I mean, we had two keyboard players, and we had Michael McDonald, and we had Cornelius Plumpus, four guitar players, Myself, Pat, uh, Jeff Baxter, and John McSee. Uh, four drummers. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. And and, and Tyron playing bass. But um, oh, and and Bobby uh, Lakine playing percussion. So it was, it was a lot to put together. So we spent geez, a little bit of time rehearsing all that and getting it together. And then we played our first show at the Sportatorium or Sports Arena, whatever it's called, where we used to play all the time anyway, in uh, San Diego, and um, just to see what it felt like. 
And uh, it was amazing. The crowd got up and gave us a standing ovation for like five minutes before we could even start playing. We were blown away. We weren't expecting that at all. And then the next night we were at the uh, Hollywood Bowl, and it sold out. I think the only show that sold out faster up to that point anyway was the Beatles. And we played that show, made the money for the uh, Vietnam vets, and proceeded to play 13 more shows, two of which were benefits, and the rest were just regular public shows, pretty much to pay for the startup cost. Well, I would think that, that um, the Hollywood Bowl show has got to stand as one of those moments because, really, it's one of the most legendary shows of the era. It, it not only was um, made a statement about you guys and, and, and where you were at in your lives, but the, the way the crowd turned out, y- you must have felt very special knowing what you meant to those people because it was. if you look at clips of it or listen to it, it's just an amazing night that, that really shows a, a ton of love coming back from, uh, from the audience. The audience was awesome, and and quite frankly, we didn't expect that. We didn't really know what to expect. We all of us hadn't, you know, none of us in, that got together had been really playing anything of note for, you know, like five years. Like I said, I'd been playing in a band, a local band, you know, but as I said, it was not not that big a deal. It was just a way to keep yourself musically active. So we'd been away from the limelight, if you want to call it that, for a while. So we weren't expecting what we got. We were really, really surprised. Um, and it kind of became an event because we went on a motorcycle ride with Harley or something down there before the show, and you know, the day before the show, and, right. and uh, to kind of celebrate it, whatever. And then we got together, did the actual show, were blown away by the crowd response. And it was, you know, it was a... It was a Coverall show. We played all facets of the band, right. both the regular early version of the band and Michael's music all the way through, and and you know, in interspersed, you heard all facets of the band's music, and uh, the crowd loved it. It was great. Yeah, and that really sets up the next chapter of the band, which continues today. I mean, that really is sort of like the unofficial launch into you coming back into the fold and making new music and, and just re-energizing in a way that real I think stands as one of the great uh, comebacks in, in rock and roll history, if you even want to call it a comeback, this continuation that continues mm-hmm. today and right into this summer with the tour with Santana. Are you excited about, you know, again, yet another summer in front of uh, adoring crowds? I mean, does it, does it ever get old for you, Tom, or are these moments still meaningful for no, you? No, I mean, it's, it's a way of life, so it never gets old. I mean, I can't really picture doing anything else. Um, I love playing live. The whole band does. Everybody does. And it's pretty much what keeps you centered and what you want to do, and you, you work towards that. This has been a productive year in that we did those those two album shows at the Beacon Theater in New York, which were recorded and filmed, and they will come out on a DVD, and we've been working on the mixes for that uh-huh. um, up to, shoot, uh, a week ago. And uh, also we're working on songs for brand new songs that nobody's ever heard. These are all things That's that have been written exciting. very recently. It is very exciting. I, I, for me, it's a thrill to finally be doing some new music. We haven't done anything since 2010. And this is... Not only new music, but going in a different direction a little bit. Not to the point where people won't know who it is, because they will. But uh, it's also not a rubber stamp of what we've done in the past. And it's it, it's all being done, all the writing is being done in a co-writing situation with John Shanks, uh-huh. who's producing it. And at the same time, 
it brings up because of that you get a different feel for the songs and places you have never gone before because it's got somebody else's influence in it to me that's very cool and it also keeps you this is important to me if you're going to do this to me you got to be valid uh, you can't just keep go out. You can't just keep going out year after year after year playing the same old stuff. Um, I mean, you can, but I'd like to keep it valid because it keeps it fresh for us as a band as well. And um, it's it's important to me to do that. Just like doing those shows at the Beacon was a flash in the past. We'd never done album shows before, and it was a lot of work to put that together. But uh, especially doing two whole albums in one night and two nights in a row. But, and then again, doing brand new music and doing all this in one year and then uh, going back out on the road on our own in April and then a month off and then we're out with Carlos for two months. And that's, I guess, going to be a real big uh, tour for him too because I don't think he's done a lot of touring in the United States. He has a residency in Las Las Vegas. He does a couple, three times a year. But... I don't think he's toured in the States for a while. I know he tours in Europe and Australia because we toured with him in Australia. Um, New Zealand, Japan, that kind of stuff. But um, I don't think he's done a coordinated um, tour in this one in the United States, and this one is about the album Supernatural. Great band, great show. I can tell you that from having been in uh, the tour we did in in Australia. Well, it's going to be a lot of fun. And Tom, I just want to say in closing that I think you uh, you really inspire people because you know to be doing it as long as you've had, you're playing, you're singing. I don't think it's ever sounded sharper or more vital. I mean, it's as youthful and energetic uh, as anybody else out there today. And I think that that's what really gets people up out of their seats. Is uh, well, thank you. Yeah, we do play. try to keep the people involved, and we try to keep it fairly energetic. It's. Uh, Partially the reason that we keep doing this because it's it's um, it keeps us energetic, keeps us young at heart, young in mind, and young in body. Man, you got to keep in shape to do this. So it's uh, it's a great deal all the way around. All right, man, Tom. Thank you for joining me during the moment. I really appreciate it. You bet. My pleasure. And that was Tom Johnston from the Doobie Brothers. I hope you enjoyed that. I will be back in just a moment. My name is Chris Seppin. You're listening to The Moment. If you want to call toll-free, the number is 866-472-5788. Be right back after this commercial. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to The Moment with Chris Epting. If you have a question or comment about our show, please send an email to Chris at chrisepting.com. That's chris at chrisepting.com. Now, back to The Moment. Thank you for rejoining me here on The Moment. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Tom Johnston. I'm trying to set up a conversation with Pat Simmons in the next couple of weeks as well. Another founding member, of course, the Doobie Brothers. I've, I've written about and gotten to know Pat and his uh, lovely wife, Chris, over the years. Again, fascinating, hardworking people, very artistic to do just amazing work. Uh, not just musically, but, I mean, Pat's wife is a whole other story with what she does with um, vintage motorcycles and everything. And it's uh, really incredible people. So I want to get to that. We have a caller on the line we'll get to in just a moment. But just back to the Doobies for a second. I, just so you know, I mean, like I said, I'm a Doobie Brothers fan. I place them, though, in the, the pantheon of great American bands like the Grateful Dead, like the band, like the Allman Brothers. The Doobies fit right there. They really do. And I think that's why the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame needs to sit up and take notice sooner than later and, uh, and get this going. It really is, um, I think they're doing a, a great disservice, not just to Doobie Brothers fans, but music fans um, all over the planet. With that, we have a caller on the line. I have Craig from Southern California. Craig, are you there? Yes. Are you a, Craig, are you a Doobie Brothers fan? Oh, absolutely. I love the Doobie Brothers. You know, I'm a Huntington Beach native from here, from Southern California, born in 1960, so I grew up in the greatest generation of rock and roll bands, and the Doobie Brothers are right there in the top of all those bands. Have you and seen I have them live a little before, story. Craig? I'll never forget. What's that? Have you seen them live before? No, I never have, but I would love to. Yeah, I'm telling you, this summer they're on the road with Santana, which is kind of interesting because both Santana and the Doobies, you probably know this, grew out of the Bay Area, late 60s, early 70s. So it's a nice it's a nice co-headliner that brings to life that really wonderful Northern California musical vibe from, from that era back then. Both bands, of course, have gone on to do wonderful things. And, uh, yeah, definitely check them out. They're doing one of those great summer co-headline tours, I believe, in Southern California. They're at the Hollywood Bowl and then down in San Diego as well. So you should check that show out. That would be, that would be wonderful. 
what are your uh, do you have a favorite album i mean as tom mentioned i, mean, I want to mention too for listeners tom kind of broke some news there about the band working on new music which i think is great he also referenced a couple of album shows they did last year where they played Toulouse Street and The Captain and Me at the Beacon Theater in New York City. And that that's coming out on DVD later this year. So a lot, a lot of really uh, exciting things for them. Um, Craig, well, what's sort of your musical memory of the Doobies? Do you have a favorite album or favorite song or anything like that? Well, I got a lot of favorite songs, but the one that just stands out so much in my mind is in 1975, being a freshman in high school, I got my first electric guitar, and we, myself and a couple friends of mine, you know, we were just kids learning how to play, but we finally mastered playing China Grove, and we thought we were going to be rock and roll stars from there on. It was just the most epic song we could think of playing at the time. You know, it's and so funny I to say vividly that. remember, vividly remember... These guys at this karaoke place, every Friday night when we go down there and play, they always did long train running. It was just the most beautiful melody, and they would do it. But, I mean, if, if anybody should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, it should be the Doobie Brothers. It's funny you mentioned China Grove because I um – when I was I was in eighth grade, I think in '75, and we had a little a little local band in Croton on Hudson, New York, called Wells Avenue Express. They were like the band that would play at every high school dance. I remember walking by; they had a rehearsal at one of the kids' houses. The garage door was open, and they were playing China Grove into yep. Long Train Running, and it, it just shows you the ho the hold those songs had. But then, you know, how can you forget when Black on top of those really kind of classic driving rock and roll songs. Then they hit us with Black Water out of the blue, right? To, to further oh, yeah. demonstrate just how deep that band sound was. And that was, you know, if, if Long Train Running and China Grove were sort of predicated by Tom Johnston, then you have Pat Simmons coming in with Black Water. And then I think people really got a sense of just how deep this band could go. And stylistically, you know, they, just how broad they were. They remind me of another Bay Area band that kind of, had that southern rock feel to them as well. It's like the Creedence did in those type of that type of band. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good call actually. When you think of the Bay Area, I know Tom mentioned uh, Skip Spence and Moby Grape, but but yeah, Creedence absolutely. I mean, again, when you think of the Bay Area bands of the '60s coming out with you know the Jefferson Airplane and. You know, it really was an incredible kind of musical Petri dish up there, and the Doobies came out of that. You know, people don't realize they were originally, um, if not a biker band, they were kind of uh, favorites of the Hells Angels up in, up in the uh, Los Gatos area. There was a big famous place called the Chateau uh, Liberté, which was kind of a biker bar hangout where the Doobies were kind of the house band back in the day. And they were tough guys. I mean, they were, you know, it was motorcycles and leathers, but... But again, when, when I remember Blackwater coming out thinking, wow, this band is a lot more than just really catchy, hard-driving songs. And from there on in, I mean, when you look at the what they've gone through over the years in terms of personnel changes, they always figure out how to remain relevant. You know, Any band um, that can stand longevity that they have, is, are, are, they're rock gods. I mean, you know, because I know a lot of musicians in my life and it's not an easy life as people think it is it's very it's it's very grueling and tough and just to get up there on stage and play for hours is extremely tough and these guys are older than me and i know i would struggle with standing up there playing for two hours well you know just you the know, condition it's dedication 
Yeah, it really is. And it's funny you say that. I had the, the privilege last year of sitting in on a Doobie's rehearsal before they hit the road. And I got there. They were already in mid-rehearsal a couple of hours in. And I was there for a number of hours. And to watch these guys work through their set um, as, as true craftsmen. I mean, really, they were so focused and dedicated on getting it right. And they've done it hundreds, if not thousands of times. But in that rehearsal... I learned so much about the band just from watching how much they care about what they do and, and how, to your point, how much work it is to, to get these songs up and to make them sound right. I mean, that's the other thing about the doobies that I love is when they go out there, they, they've, they never phone it in. They are playing with an energy and a youth and a passion that, that the crowd feeds off of, you know, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just a great thing to experience. Again, if you've never seen the Doobie Brothers, make this summer that year because, again, they're doing a great tour, co-headliner with Santana throughout the summer. In April, they've got their own headliner tour going, just them. But uh, I think people, you know, I've, I've brought people to shows and they're just blown away. They would, they, even if they saw them back in the 70s, they actually think it's a stronger lineup now. Because of, uh, you know, it's, look, you get older, certain habits kind of fade into the background, and you can be more focused on your playing and your singing. I think the Doobies are a great example of that. I have a little confession to make. You know, living here my whole life, I've never been to the Hollywood Bowl, and I can't think of a better reason to make it my first apparent, my first time going there. I've always wanted to go to the well, Hollywood no, Bowl just for... That's a great idea, and if you don't, if you didn't know it, Craig, the Doobies actually have some history there. As Tom mentioned, their big comeback show, which which started as a charity, um, was held at the Hollywood Bowl, and their show sold out, second only to the Beatles. That's how much people missed their Doobie Brothers back in uh, in the late 1980s. So they've definitely got some. Good well, I, I think I'm going to start looking online soon here for some tickets. Do you know when they are playing the Hollywood Bowl? Any idea? Um, like a month you know what? Or? I don't, but I'm going to look it up for you right now as we speak. I'll get the tour dates up here. I believe it's in June, and um, let's check it out. Okay. Like I said, they start off in April, and they are in the Hollywood Bowl June 24th, and then okay. they are in San Diego the day before that, June 23rd. So a couple of now, good I opportunities. Go the, I, I, I prefer trying to go to the Hollywood Bowl. I could kill two birds with one stone, see one of the greatest rock and roll bands in history, and go to the Hollywood Bowl. Well, you know what? The the bowl is a fantastic place to see a show. The one caveat I'll give you is they do have what's called stacked parking, which for those who don't know means that once you park, they basically stack you essentially right next to right. each other with no no room to get out. So that but that but you know it's a small well, price to pay because once you're we'll in make the bowl out of it. Yeah, exactly. You know, the bowl is, is a classic place where you can bring food up there early. You can go have a picnic up top. There are little nooks and little parks throughout the whole environment where you can go up there a couple of hours early and really make an amazing night of it. That, to me, is really to just go to the bowl to watch a show. You're really doing yourself a disservice by not experiencing sort of the full bowl experience. And they sell food up there, too, you can bring up. It really is It's one of the great dates in the world. I've seen some great shows there from Hall and Oates to the Rolling Stones and uh, and I think I may uh, I think I may catch that that doobie show at the Hollywood Bowl as well now that we're now that we're talking about it so well Craig man I, I yeah. love your enthusiasm dude I'm glad I'm glad you understand what this band is all about because I well, thank you know you for I could, taking I my call very that. much and I love your I love hearing you talk too it's 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 a pleasure I've heard you speak before you probably don't know me but I've heard you talk <laughs> thanks a lot Craig I appreciate that brother thanks for calling in man
Take care. Well, that was a great call. Um, you know, I, I want to echo what Craig said. For any of us that grew up in the in the mid early mid seventies as kids, the Doobies were one of the first bands that really grabbed us by the lapels, you know, and 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 got in our face and made us realize what uh, what great rock and roll was all about. So, with that, I want to take another quick break. My name is Chris Epping. You are listening to the moment, and I'll be back after this with a couple of closing thoughts. Thoughts. Thanks again for listening. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. MailJet is changing how teams email with the launch of their collaboration toolkit. Create and send emails with your team faster with real-time collaboration and in-app commenting. Learn why businesses like Product Hunt, Microsoft, Avis, and more send millions of emails every day with MailJet at hello.mailjet.com forward slash voice and try MailJet Premium for one month free. That's hello.mailjet.com forward slash voice. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. You are listening to The Moment with Chris Epting. If you have a question or comment about our show, please send an email to Chris at chrisepting.com. That's chris at chrisepting.com. Now, back to The Moment. 
Thank you for rejoining me. I am Chris Epping, and man, this has been fun just talking doobies for an hour. You know, it's like uh, they've always been one of my favorite bands. Uh, I thought Tom Johnston did a great interview. Like I said I want to get Pat Simmons on here, too, and cannot stress enough, if you've never seen this band, look, if you've seen them, you know why. You've got to go back. They're touring a lot this summer. Pat Simmons, Tom Johnston, John McVie who plays everything, uh, Mark Russo on the saxophone, Ed Toth on drums, John Cowan bass and vocals, and the one and only Bill Payne on keyboards. If you don't know, I mean, Bill Payne from Little Feet, he's the keyboard player in the Doobies now. I mean, again, the musical pedigrees of this band are just, they're jaw-dropping. So check out DoobieBrothers.com for all the tour dates. I am super excited. I've got my calendar good and marked up with red X's of the shows that I want to check out. And, uh, Again, if anyone from any voters of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame are listening, get it together, everybody. Come on, what are you waiting for? This is just one of the uh, America's true treasures, one of the great rock and roll bands in history who definitely belong in your in your hallowed hall there. But in the meantime, like I said, check them out this summer. They are uh, they're you know exhilarating. They'll just they give what I sense at a doobie. I always leave a doobie show feeling better than I entered. Um, because they just remind you of why the spirit of music matters so much and why the, uh, the youthful energy that they bring, uh, why that kind of inspiration matters. It's, uh, you know, every, every TV show for me is a big moment. So with that, <laughs> I want to thank you again for listening. You can check out all the prior shows, all of the moments on Spotify, on iTunes, on Stitcher, here on voiceamerica.com. They're all archived easily for your listening pleasure. And I want to thank you for listening. Again, it's uh, Moments Matter to me. I love hearing about people's moments. Um, you can check out my website, chrisepting.com. If you want to email me off of there, write to me about your moments, about people you want to hear on the show. This is obviously a participatory kind of show. I love hearing from you, so please don't be strangers. Next week, I'm going to be back with uh, another special guest, Loretta Swit. If you remember Loretta Swit from MASH. So I'm anxious to talk to her about her moments. And from that, I will leave you. Again, my name is Chris Epting. I want to thank you most sincerely for joining me again this week on The Moment. And I look forward to being back at you next week. Thanks again. Thank you for taking a moment out of your busy week to join us for The Moment. Be sure to join Chris Epting for another edition next Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week. 